This is episode four of the Spot On podcast. And today we're exploring clinical trials and skin cancer, particularly what a clinical trial is and why they're so important. We'll step you through the process of what it's like to participate in a clinical trial and help you to start thinking about whether participating in a clinical trial is even right for you. We'll also delve into the world of clinical trials for patients in rural and remote locations and explore some of the advancements in the way that trials are run to improve participation across the country. First up, we're going to understand the fundamentals of clinical trials. And to do that, we're speaking with Professor Mark Shackleton. And my name's Mark Shackleton. I'm the Director of Oncology at the Alfred Hospital. I'm also a Professor of Oncology at Monash University and so have a suite of research programs and research projects broadly linked to cancer. My particular cancer of interest from a research point of view is melanoma and other types of skin cancers. Another hat that I wear that's very pertinent to this discussion is I'm the current chair of uh, a group called Melanoma and Skin Cancer Trials Incorporated. So we are the nationally representative entity that oversees the development and support of clinical trials in the diseases of melanoma and skin cancer. So we're a federally funded group that, that yeah, really just seeks to support and develop trial activity in those diseases, fundamentally making trials available uh, for patients with melanoma or skin cancer, of course, all with a view to improving the um, outcomes of uh, patients affected by those diseases. To help us frame a conversation around the role and importance of clinical trials in skin cancer, it's first important for us to understand why we even need clinical trials. Clinical trials in skin cancer occur across all parts of skin cancer care and treatment. There are trials for prevention, that is, how can we do more to prevent skin cancer? There are trials for early detection, how we can detect skin cancer earlier, which makes it easier to treat. And there are clinical trials in skin cancer treatment to take place for early stage skin cancers through to treatment options for patients with advanced skin cancer. In this episode, we're focusing on clinical trials for medicines or drugs used to treat advanced forms of skin cancer. Well, if you think about it, all the different kinds of medical and cancer research that's conducted around the world, much of it is done in laboratories, using various modelling systems to develop new ways to treat cancer. And before a treatment can get to a patient as an option to consider, that patient's doctor would need to have a lot of information about the potential treatment to help that patient make an informed decision about whether or not they'd accept it like the percentage chance that it might be helpful, what are the potential side effects, and how does this treatment compare with other treatments that are available? And we just can't get that information from the data that's generated from laboratory-based research. How can you tell a patient what the side effects of a drug are when that drug's never actually been given to a patient, for example? Because mm. yep. the truth is that that humans are very different entities from the systems that we use in laboratories in those early kind of drug development contexts. So really clinical trials are the, are the main vehicle, if not pretty much the only vehicle through which we take the most promising ideas or treatment concepts or brand new drugs, of course, 
that come out of laboratory research programs and, and are given to patients. They're the vehicles through which that happened for the first time. Pretty much every drug that you might have been prescribed by a doctor, they've almost all been through this phase of initial testing in patients. They've all come out of good ideas in laboratories with promising data, excitement and anticipation. But, you know, somewhere out there, there's got to be the first patient that actually takes the tablet. And the way that we do that in order to look after that particular patient and make sure that, that we're watching how they respond to the drug very closely is via a clinical trial. So clinical trials are absolutely essential in translating fundamental research discoveries and the development of potential new treatments into use in humans, ultimately with a view to seeing whether those treatments are useful in treating a much wider population of patients, assuming that the drugs are proven to be safe and successful. Thinking about now who can participate in a clinical trial, there's a whole spectrum of patients who are potentially suitable to participate in a clinical trial. Ultimately, the question of whether someone is suitable to participate in a clinical trial comes down to the trial design. So what specific research question is being asked? So for example, it's quite important in some trials that the group of patients that's being tested are relatively similar in terms of their basic cancer stage or kind of cancer characteristics, if you like, as well as other features of their general health. So for most clinical trials, not all, but most clinical trials, they require patients, for example, to have the same type of cancer. So clinical trials are always targeted at a very select group of people. To participate, you first need to have the same type of cancer that they're looking for. And that seems simple enough, but even that can be confusing sometimes. For example, as we heard in a previous episode of this foundation series, melanoma in the lungs is very different to lung cancer or breast cancer in the lungs. Also, trials are often aimed within a particular stage of cancer. So it might be a trial for earlier stage melanoma where someone's undergone surgery, for example. And it can be even more complicated sometimes too, where the trial might specify that it's for those undergoing first line therapy, meaning that the trial is only open if the person's not had any treatment for their melanoma at all yet. Or on the other end of the spectrum, there are some trials where it specifies that the trial is only open for someone that's had all the available treatments and there are none left. So even just that and the stage the person's at with their cancer treatment can be a barrier. Underlying health conditions can also be an excluding factor when it comes to clinical trial eligibility as well. Many trial protocols exclude people, in fact, that have got, you know, some of the major background medical problem, I don't know, nasty heart disease or major problems with their immune system or, you know, some other serious, serious background health issues. Sometimes those patients are excluded from clinical trials because it's basically done for experimental reasons because in designing the trials that test specifically whether a drug works or not and whether a drug is safe or not, we need to make sure that you're comparing apples with apples. So those groups of patients have got to be as similar as possible in terms of their disease characteristics and of their general health for the experiment to be, well, to, to be valid, basically, so that you can best interpret the, the, the results of the study. One of the fundamental principles of medical research, which is agreed 
internationally is that it's not appropriate to do things to patients, like give them a drug, without informing them first of what it is and why it's being done and the potential implications, which is a term called informed consent. So what does that actually look like in practice? So first patients are identified as being having a trial that's potentially suitable for them. And then if that's the case and there's an initial discussion that goes on about to sort of gauge their interest, if they're interested, then the next thing that we actually do is to sit down with them and to go through a specific document, which is actually the, the informed consent document, which basically lists every bit of information about the trial that is relevant. So it tells them why the trial is being done, what's the basic rationale in terms of why we think that the treatment might be effective, why the trial has been designed in the specific way that, that, that it has, and where we already know details about the treatment or potential side effects. There's an explanation or revelation in that document about potential side effects that they may experience. There's also a discussion around potential benefits that they might receive through their participation. Essentially, it's quite a detailed document, often running over many pages, that really explains to them you know, exactly what they're getting into. And, and, and ethically, almost the most important part of doing a clinical trial is actually, you know, people really need to know what they're getting into before they commit to the process. And that's what informed consent really is. You'll find that clinical trials are categorised into different phases. You might hear about early phase or phase one studies, then usually phase two and phase three, and even sometimes phase four studies. These all basically represent the different stages of maturity of the trial towards actual widespread clinical use. And just to be clear, the phase of the trial isn't related to the stage of the skin cancer. The phase of the trial relates to how advanced the research and evidence is. So phase one studies are usually trying to work out whether a drug is safe to give to people and also what is the right dose that they should receive. Because often, you know, when we're starting blind, we don't even know how much of the drug to give to someone. So they're really kind of ground up projects and we've got to even collect really fundamental information, for example, just around exactly how much drug that we can, like what are the actual doses? Do the, does this drug need to be given one tablet a day or two tablets twice a day? Or what's the actual dose that, 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 that is suitable for human beings? Phase one trials often involve a relatively small number of patients and they're, and they're usually not randomized. So patients usually know exactly what they're getting. And, and as I said, we seek to track their well-being and various parameters of their physical function quite closely. If a drug is found to be safe after a phase one clinical trial and the right dose is figured out, then things move to phase two, which is basically to see if there's evidence or a signal to say that the drug actually works or it's doing what it's supposed to do. Phase two studies are also usually not randomised, so every patient usually knows which medicine they're getting and what's trying to be established in doing the trial. We're seeking to try and work out what proportion of those patients actually gets benefit from treatment with that drug at the established dose. If there's enough evidence of benefit or of efficacy of the drug from phase two studies, then the drug will go to the next stage of development, which is called phase three. And in phase three, that's where this notion of kind of randomized controlled trials comes. Because in those, in the phase three stage of evaluation, we're trying to work out whether the new drug or the new treatment approach is better, worse, or the same than what's the standard established treatment for that particular disease and that particular person. So in phase three drugs, we're basically comparing 
two different types of treatments. One is the new one, and one is the standard one that they would otherwise receive if they were receiving treatment outside of a clinical trial. And from an experimental design point of view, it's often quite important in those kind of comparative studies. There's actually a whole lot of features uh, that are built into those designs. So one is this notion of what we call randomization. So where the decision as to whether a patient gets the new or the standard treatment is, is actually completely arbitrary and is generated, you know, essentially by random number generation. The reason for introducing randomization into clinical trials is to reduce bias, to make sure that they're comparing apples with apples. The other thing that's actually done towards that in some phase three studies is what's called blinding. So that's the practice wherein the patient actually doesn't know which treatment that they're receiving. So they might be receiving the new treatment, they might be receiving the standard treatment, but those treatments are actually blinded. So the patients don't actually know which one they're getting. So again, that's just the next level of getting this sort of apples to apples comparison. In fact, there's even a level beyond that, which is where the doctor and the treating team don't even know which drug the patients are receiving. So, so that's what's called a double blind trial where the, where the research team, as well as the patient, don't know which treatment that they're receiving. So we know now some of the fundamentals of how clinical trials are structured and how participants are selected, but who actually runs a clinical trial? Well, there are a range of different entities that ultimately are the trial sponsor who are responsible for the development, conduct and outcomes of a study. And so trial sponsors can be you know, all sorts of different entities. So for example, the trials group of which I'm the chair at the moment, Melanoma and Skin Cancer Trials, we act as the responsible entity in the oversight and conduct of you know, at least some of the studies that we manage. And we essentially help our investigators to get funding for their trials. So an entity like a trial group would put their hand up to take responsibility for the design, development, conduct and outcomes of a study to help the process of getting the trial funded, normally through federal government sources. It's important to know that all clinical trials have been vetted, approved and supervised by a Human Research Ethics Committee. The role of these committees is to review all research proposals involving participants to ensure that they are ethically acceptable. The committee reviews the trial submission to confirm that there is enough evidence to support the strong possibility that the treatment might work and that the risk of harm is acceptable. There are many other things that the Human Research Ethics Committee considers including meticulous review of the document on informed consent and the protection of privacy for people participating in research and their data. It's not just trial groups who become sponsors though. Often in medical drug development, it's pharmaceutical companies who invest in the development of drugs and take responsibility of the trial via a formal sponsorship. How do patients normally find out about clinical trials? Most patients find out about clinical trials are really directly through their own doctors, usually in the context of cancer that I mostly work in, actually through their treating specialists. But as a patient, unless your doctor is either involved in that system directly, such as my patients, or has some sort of connection, then yeah, it's often hard to even get access or find out like where the trials are. And so all patients will be being treated by specialists 
who are in some way through the background clinical network connected to a center that's doing a clinical trial. You might feel cautious about participating in a clinical trial, but it might still be worth asking questions to find out more. You might be surprised to find out that clinical trials aren't necessarily the choice of last resort. I think you know, patients definitely have an opportunity to be proactive about asking their treating clinicians about clinical trial options for them because if that clinician is not linked with a group that's doing clinical trials themselves, they will know where to find them. I mean, at the hospital I work at, there's many, many trials that we don't do. But if we have a patient that comes through our system where there might be a clinical trial that's suitable for them and, and we don't have that clinical trial running here at the Alfred, then we'll very happily and enthusiastically refer them to a hospital that does have that clinical trial running. So that same sort of principle really applies across the spectrum of the care continuum. There are a whole range of factors that might need to be considered by patients and clinicians, including the timing of whether a trial might be open at a particular time and other eligibility criteria. So there aren't always trials available for a particular person's situation, but their specialist will certainly know how to find out if there are trials available. And that would be the most recommended way for patients to do. So if you want to learn more about participating in a clinical trial, make sure you speak with your primary treating doctor who will point you in the right direction. And if you are thinking about participating in a clinical trial, what kind of questions should you be asking before you get involved? So I think if, if a person lives not too far from the clinical trial centre, then the simplest thing is probably just to get a referral to the trial centre and to really get into the detail of what's involved and what sort of questions should be asked with the team that's actually doing the trial because there's many different types of trials and the commitments and the issues that pertain to them are often quite different. So it's a little hard for a primary treating doctor who's not doing a trial to it's a little hard to talk very generically about issues relating to clinical trials they're often relatively trial specific but you know some things i think that are often relevant you know particularly for people living in you know, i'd say kind of out of metro but certainly regional areas is you know this sort of the kind of logistics around actually getting to the center where the trial is operating that's a major major problem There's resources being invested in the sector at the moment to try and bring the trials to the people rather than having the people come to the trials by improving out of metro and regional access, but it's a quite a big piece of work and there's a lot more investment, I think, that's actually going to be required. But issues about logistics, I think, are always really important. The question around proximity and travel to access clinical trials is a real one that deserves particular focus as it impacts many Australians because many of us live in locations that aren't close to the places where clinical trials are conducted. So to go more into this topic about remote access for clinical trials and to explore more topics facing the real world of trials every day, we spoke with medical oncologist, Dr. Megan Lyle. So I'm a medical oncologist. Um, I work here in Cairns, far north Queensland, um, at Cairns Hospital and also Cairns Private Hospital. I originally did most of my uh, medical training in Newcastle in New South Wales. So a, a regional city, although quite a large regional city, and then moved to Sydney for a couple of years. And as part of that, I worked at Melanoma Institute Australia, which is where I um, really developed uh, my interest in both melanoma and also clinical trials and, and clinical research. Megan's lived in Cairns for over five years now, and she's passionate about improving access to clinical trials for patients in far north Queensland, because when it comes to oncology and cancer medicine in general, often access to trials gives patients the best access to treatment. And sometimes 
patients need treatment options that are above and beyond what's readily available. And so being able to access those kind of experimental treatments or novel therapies through clinical trials is of the utmost importance. Being in, I guess, Cairns in particular, being in a big state like Queensland, it's very difficult for patients in this North Queensland area to access trials in Brisbane. So I would often see patients in sort of my early days up here where we would talk about trials as an option, but the the travel and the cost of travel was very much a, a barrier to, to people being able to participate. So being able to access these therapies close to home for those in locations not near to metro and city centres is really important. Travelling for trials costs money. It's time away from friends and family and work. So then if a patient in a rural and remote location goes on a clinical trial, why can't they do it close to home? When a clinical trial is being run, it will be done at a specific approved trial centre. And it means that site, that hospital um, or clinic has received specific approvals, including ethics approval to run the trial at that location. And often that means as well that not only does the treatment have to be given in that centre, but even the extra um, tests, scans, blood tests also need to be done at that approved accredited trial site. In general, regional hospitals are increasingly receiving approval or accreditation to run trials in in those areas. So there has been a significant increase in the number of trials being run in oncology, um, particularly in certain areas like immunotherapy treatments for cancer, which have sort of flooded all of the sort of tertiary um, or quaternary hospitals in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane. Which has created the opportunity to run more trials from regional areas. The other great development in terms of increasing accessibility of clinical trials is the teletrial model. So telehealth, where we use video conferencing technology to assess patients um, using the camera and the audio technology, is something that's been around for for several years. Certainly, as in general, there's been an explosion in telehealth in, in probably the last 12 or 18 months because of COVID as well. So I think a lot more people are probably familiar with that even being offered as a service by their GP. So the teletrial model uses that same idea to some degree. And what that means is that when a trial is opened, it will be opened at a a key, a primary or a lead site. And then other hospitals in regional areas, for example, can be opened or added to that trial as a satellite site. And they'll be able to receive their treatment, have their doctor's visits um, and other tests done at their own hospital, which is labelled as the satellite site. And using telehealth tools like video conferencing and other technologies helps connect satellite sites to lead sites, which makes it a lot easier for regional hospitals to be approved as a satellite site and be supervised by a main or lead site. And so that model is being implemented really Australia-wide. So there was a specific program within Queensland that I was involved in and and we now have a sort of a cluster of hospitals in North Queensland, primarily uh, Cairns, Townsville and Mackay. And we've, we've been using that model successfully with a number of trials. 
Uh, another way of using that model to have a, a lead site in Brisbane uh, and then open satellite sites throughout the state. Um, and that's the model that's been used. In, in this case, it's for a lung cancer trial that's treating a very rare subtype of lung cancer. And so we're basically able to harness the whole state um, and make anyone in any part of Queensland who happens to end up having this rare type of cancer hopefully be able to access the, the trial treatment. And when it comes to experiencing the clinical trial as a participant from a satellite site, for the purposes of their treatment, the day-to-day interactions for a patient aren't much different. They're still with their own doctor and research nurses and coordinators at their hospital. So on a day-to-day, it really doesn't make a difference to the way that you'd experience a clinical trial from a satellite site. It's really more sort of the behind the scenes sort of supervision, delegation of responsibilities and the oversight that comes from the lead site. So certainly from an administrative point of view, there are some differences, but for, for the patient, I think either way, things would be, I think, just as smooth. And obviously in the end, they're, they're getting the treatment either way. So there are some great improvements being made that give hope for more people to access different kinds of treatment from across Australia and participate in clinical trials. But there's still often important considerations that each patient needs to make about whether participating in a clinical trial is indeed worth it for them, which can sometimes be a challenge for many people to weigh up. So, you know, often there is an expectation, you know, yes, there's a trial, that's going to be fantastic for me to access this new treatment. Uh, And maybe this idea that going onto a trial should be done at all costs, even if that means travelling to Brisbane or, or interstate. But I think it's important to balance what the treatment is and what realistically are the expected outcomes of the treatment with with the costs, you know. For example, in in the setting of, of perhaps more advanced cancer or melanoma, yes, there may be a new treatment that's being explored, but not all treatments that are being tested in a clinical trial prove to be effective. And I guess one thing that I worry about sometimes is the potential to be traveling and be away from family, perhaps in the the in the last time of your life, you know that you've, we've obviously got to have that focus on quality of life, time with family, as well as you know trying to hunt down for for the next best next best treatment. Understanding the trial design is also an important consideration when deciding whether to go on a clinical trial. There are a a range of different trial designs. In some trials, it will be open label, meaning that you know what treatment you're being given and your doctor knows what treatment you're being given. But then there will be some trials where it's a placebo-controlled trial. The idea of that is really to make the clinical trial a very robust clinical experiment, which is what this is. A placebo is a medication that seems to be real, but it actually isn't. So in a clinical trial, placebo drugs are used as a control to give the best and most accurate results to prove the effectiveness of the treatment. So it's an important part of trial design, but again, can be difficult going through all the the processes to be approved for a trial to meet those critical eligibility criteria, but then know that you may be in a trial where there's, there's a placebo arm. It's important to understand that a trial won't operate with a placebo arm if there's already an effective treatment that you could be receiving in the community. 
So placebo trials are really only ethically sound and valid if it's a situation where the only alternative is to be receiving no treatment at all. And your doctor will tell you very clearly whether the trial is a placebo trial or not. So it's important not to assume that all trials have a placebo in them, which is often the perception that people can have as well. So if you're considering participating in a clinical trial, make sure you take time to consider the decision, but also discuss it with your doctor, your family, or the people that are important to you, and consider it carefully. Some people like to discuss the information with their general practitioner or someone else perhaps that they have a close relationship to really get um, an opinion from people that you trust and people that you care about, and really make sure that you understand what the trial involves, what the costs are going to be in terms of time commitment, travel, time away from family, what the potential side effects are and how that that might impact your life or your quality of life in the future. And really make sure that being part of the trial in the end, weighing all of those things up is actually the right thing to do. Mm. And important to always understand that there is never any obligation to go on to a clinical trial if your doctor offers you a trial, but but you decide that's not the right thing for you. That's absolutely okay. And you should talk to them about what other alternative options there may be in your circumstances. And what happens after a clinical trial? Well, once the data has been collected and analysed, and if the drug is proven to be effective, the drug is first approved for release by the Therapeutic Goods Administration, the TGA. And once that process is complete, the drug can be obtained in a few ways. It could be done by private prescription, where the patient pays. It could be done through compassionate access programs, where a pharmaceutical company might pay or through the public hospital system, so a hospital or state government pays. Eventually, the drug may be listed on the Pharmaceutical Benefit Scheme, the PBS, when the government subsidises the cost of the medicine. It can take some time to be listed on the PBS. As we close out this episode, it gives us an opportunity to think about what gives us hope when it comes to the future of clinical trials and skin cancer, and also perhaps what the broader community can be doing to help continue to foster innovation when it comes to new treatments for melanoma and skin cancers. We've had a remarkable decade in melanoma and skin cancer in terms of therapy innovations. But, you know, having said that was off for many decades of almost zero progress. (laughs) So it's been wonderful to be kind of part of that, I suppose, and to see so many patients benefit. I mean, skin cancer is so common in Australia. I mean, it's just crazy just how common it is. There's been so many wonderful innovations in that space that it's been to see the benefits of that rollout to patients over the last five to 10 years. It's important to reflect though, that the only reason that we have those treatments is because of 10, 20, 30 years of fundamental basic and discovery research that actually went on, that discovered those drugs, ultimately did some early testing in the laboratory, found some promising leads, and then ultimately provided data that was compelling enough to justify clinical trials that were done that tested them. Wow, they work spectacularly well, in fact, and and then the whole world changed. So I think it's really important for the community to appreciate that kind of spectrum, that there is this really critically important sort of basic and discovery research phase. If we don't keep investing in that, then the well of innovation basically dries up. So there are more innovations coming through that are rolling out into clinical trials now, and there's been some exciting uh, innovations announced, particularly around trying to maximize the benefit of the treatment concept around augmenting a person's immune system to try and attack and control their their cancer. That's obviously been a real, you know, complete paradigm shift in cancer treatment in the last five to 10 years. There's a lot of innovation still coming in that space, and we'll be 
I think improving the way that we use immunotherapy to treat patients in, in the coming, again, five to 10 years. But I would really like to make the point to the wider community that, you know, don't forget about the basic and discovery research phase that actually takes a lot longer. So literally it can take decades, but it's so essential because without that, you basically run out of new ideas, you run out of new drugs to test, and in fact, advancement and improvement of care basically just stagnates. Mm -hmm. So, And I think the experience of melanoma is actually a great one. So the, all the new drugs that we have, they're the results of basic and fundamental discovery research. And so if that work wasn't done in the 80s and 90s and early noughties, we wouldn't have any of the drugs that we've got today that people are basically being cured by. So I, I think that a focus on clinical trials is really important. It's fantastic. And I would you know, encourage people to be very proactive about finding out what their opportunities are um, along that time. But broadly as a community, we need to encourage our government representatives to keep investing in the basic and discovery research sector, because if they don't, then everything will kind of dry up. And as we age, in fact, like the stagnation would actually occur in most of our life, but certainly the future generations won't get any benefits. So I've got to think big and think, I think right across the spectrum of the drug development. It's not only clinical trials are incredibly important and it's, this session is fantastic and I'm so happy to be a part of it, but you know, don't forget about the, the sort of 10 or 20 years that are required to actually get a particular new idea to the point of testing in clinical trials. It's critically important. And that's it for this episode on the use of clinical trials in skin cancer. Be sure to check back on some of our other episodes in this series on the skin cancer fundamentals, including conversations with leading clinicians and experts about the diagnosis and treatment of melanoma and other skin cancers. Remember that all of the content discussed on this podcast is for information purposes only and should not be considered as medical advice. Please make sure you speak with a medical professional for advice relating to your own specific situation. This podcast is brought to you by the Melanoma and Skin Cancer Advocacy Network, MSCAN, who are providing a new, innovative approach to tackle Australia's national cancer. MSCAN engages with Australia's leading clinicians, researchers and advocates with the aim of increasing the knowledge of those affected by a diagnosis. For more information about MSCAN and the advocacy work going on to help Australia get skin serious, visit mscan.org.au.